Uh, it's really a delight to introduce Carl Safina. Uh, if you've read any of Carl's books, uh, feel free to say so in the chat. I don't think he's used to giving sermons, so a little dopamine boost might help from a friendly, uh, friendly crowd. So uh, anyway, who is Carl Safina? Uh, well, Carl Safina is an environmental scientist. He was born in Brooklyn, which you'll hear as soon as he talks. He's the founder of the Safina Center, an advocacy group making the case for life on Earth. Uh, it actually used to be called uh, the Blue Ocean Institute. So he's one of the founders of our church, you could say. Um, he's a voice for the dogs and cats and cockatoos you, uh, who love you or maybe uh, your grandparents who are isolated at home with them. Uh, he's a voice for the wildlife in your neighborhood and the amazing evolutionary magic that brought them and us all, and all living things into being. He raised pigeons when he was a kid, kids. He loves dogs, dog lovers. Um, he's like a secular St. Francis. Um, he's on a quest to humanize human beings, uh, to extend the circle of our compassion to the creatures we share the planet with, uh, believing that will help us be kinder to each other. He's a drummer who worked his way through college drumming. Um, he's the best science writer writing now. His first uh, book was Song for the Blue Ocean. His most recent two were Beyond Words, How Animals Think and Feel, uh, and most recently Becoming Wild, which explores how sperm whales raise their families, how they know each other's names and remember them for a lifetime, how macaws, pic uh, Carl's picture of macaws at a clay lick in the background here, uh, create and appreciate beauty, and how chimpanzees managed to get along despite being so much like us. So I feel personally indebted to Carl because he taught me to see nature as an outdoor cathedral and improved my life. And uh, he taught me that nature is a mystical wonderland. So without further un without further earned superlatives, no matter what he says in some false modesty rebuttal, I give you Carl Safina. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very much blushing from that really generous introduction. And it's uh, an incredible honor to be here with you today. I'm very excited and um, I'm looking forward to enjoying the rest of the service. I've enjoyed the opening tremendously. So I'm here in my home on Long Island, New York, about 50 miles east of Manhattan. And I'm gonna do a reading and then I'm gonna do, um, I'm gonna show you a lot of pictures. So the reading first, and this reading is in a place at the east end of Long Island, about 120 miles east of Manhattan, near the very tip of Long Island, where my dog, Kenzie, a 50-pound black wolf, more or less, goes loping along the shore, as is her custom, energetically invested in the obvious truth that all adventure lies at the tip of one's nose. The familiar is always also the exotic, and if you can detect that scent and follow it, it'll take you far. And soon, as always, she's way ahead of me down the beach. Today we woke to glass calm water. The sound is stretched taut to the far points of land. Out across the open water, the sea blends skyward with no horizon. On a morning this placid and beautiful, dying and going to heaven wouldn't be worth it. So a question arises, what ought we do? 
how should we live this day? It's an old question. Socrates may have been the first to ask it. Aristotle helped get the ball rolling 2,300 years ago. He said, plants exist for the sake of animals. Animals exist for the sake of man. It must be that nature has made all things specifically for the sake of man. St. Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s believed that only humans have an eternal soul, that God gave all the animals to people for our use, and that people can kill or use animals however we desire, quote, without any injustice. The world is made for man, declared Francis Bacon around 1600. Rene Descartes in the 1600s believed animals lack consciousness and could be treated without concern for their well-being. He declared men lords and possessors of nature. Immanuel Kant in the 1700s believed that each moral being has the right at all times to be treated respectfully, but he had a catch, and that was that only humans are moral beings. To Sigmund Freud, civilization's entire rationale is, quote, to defend us against nature. He wrote that in 1927. Those thinkers drew a chalk circle around humanity and erected a firewall between us and the rest of the creation. They may sound arrogant now, but their time was not our time. The world, so far as they knew it, didn't need our sympathy. That humans might ever acquire the power to harm the world could scarcely have crossed their minds. Charles Darwin's great insight blasted a crater into the philosopher's firewall between humans and nature with his realization that all the world is kin. There is grandeur in this view of life, he wrote famously, with its several powers having been originally breathed by the creator into a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone cycling on, from so simple a beginning, endless forms most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being evolved. Darwin's insight blurred borders, placing us on a continuum in an organic tree of life. Again, like Copernicus, like Galileo, here was a genius realizing we're not the center of the circle and pushing the borders outward. Aldo Leopold marked this wider perimeter with his softly stated revolution called the land ethic. He wrote, the land simply enlarges the bound, the, I'm sorry, the land ethic simply enlarges the boundaries of the community to include soils, waters, plants, and animals. A land ethic changes the role of Homo sapiens, our species, from conqueror of the land community to plain member and citizen of it. In all the history of philosophy and ethical thought, no one had ever quite come out and said, we are part of the world. Imagine that. In a universe devoid of life, any life at all would be immensely meaningful. We are that meaning. And what we see, wrote the poet Mary Oliver, is the world that cannot cherish us, but which we can cherish. It seems to me as though life itself, 
is the great universal unrequited love of all time. Well, down along the shoreline where my dog has paused, a red-winged blackbird calls, then listens, then calls again. One note is not music. It's what lies between the notes that makes the music. And what is between them is their relationship. Relationships are the music life makes. Context creates meaning. Asking what is the meaning of life is the wrong question. It makes you look in the wrong places. The question is, where is the meaning in life? And the place to look is between. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that though I'm a secular person and a scientist, I believe that our relationship with the living world must be mainly religious. I don't mean theological necessarily. I mean religious in the sense of being reverent, revolutionary, spiritual, and inspired. Reverent because the world is unique and thus holy. Revolutionary in making a break with the drift and downdraft of maladaptive modes of thought, spiritual in seeking attainment of a higher realm of human being, inspired in the aspiration to connect crucial truths with wider communities, religious in precisely this way, connection with a sense of purpose. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your attention with that. And I am going to now switch gears a bit. And, um, oh wait, I can't do that until I share the screen with you because that makes my whole screen. Okay, here we go. You should be now seeing um, the cover of my book, Beyond Words, Are you seeing that? Thumbs up, okay, good. <laughs> Many of you who have dogs have probably asked, does my dog really love me or does she just want a treat? Obviously, you can simply see by looking at them that they really love us. It's really easy to see through those furry little heads, isn't it? Well, maybe not. Maybe it's not so easy to just see right through their furry little heads. But something is going on in those furry little heads. You can't tell me nothing is going on. And why is the question always, do they love us? That's not a question about them. That's a question about us and our insecurity. So I needed a different question. And the question I came up with was, who are you? That's a question about them, not about me. It means we're trying to learn about you when we ask this question. We have capacities of the human mind. We all have these capacities to greater or lesser extents. The question is, are we humans the only ones that have these capacities? What's going on in the other large brains that share this planet? For a long time, scientists said that's not a scientific question. There's no way in. But it's very hard to believe, A, that nothing is going on in there, and B, that there's no way in. There are actually at least three very good ways in, and there's more than three. 
we can look at brains, we can consider the gathering principle of all of life on earth, which is that it is all related and all kin. We call that, in a sense, evolution, and we can look at what they do. It turns out that a nerve cell is a nerve cell, pretty much the same thing, whether it is in a dog, a frog, a cat, a person, it's pretty much all the same. It's pretty much the same that an octopus have, has, even though an octopus has eight brains, it has a distributed brain throughout its body. And yet on tests, octopuses perform at the same level as do apes and octopuses can differentiate different human beings, some of whom they like and some of whom they don't trust. What do we do with this knowledge that something like an octopus has a mind like an ape? Well, mostly we catch them and boil them, which says more about our relationship with the rest of the living world than it says about their relationship with the rest of the living world. If you look at brains, you can see a lot about how evolution works. You look at the mouse brain and the human brain there, you see those are two mammalian brains. They're basically very similar. And the way evolution works is it doesn't just keep creating something radically new. It takes what's in stock, the parts that are on the shelf, it fabricates a new twist. And from that, we get all of the diversity that we see in this magnificent, beautiful and magical living world. If you look at a chimpanzee brain and a human brain, you see basically we have a large ape brain. It's a good thing ours is the biggest because we're also the most insecure of all of the apes. But uh-oh, that's a dolphin. Now what do we do? There's a bigger and more complex brain right there on that screen. What does this tell us about the intelligence and emotional capacity of dolphins? Tells us nothing actually, because you can see a brain but that's not the same thing as seeing a mind. However, you can see the way the mind works in the logic of behaviors. So look at these elephants. They have made a decision and we understand exactly the logic in their decision. Their decision was we're going to let our babies go to sleep in the shade of these palm trees. We are going to rest and doze. We can't afford to just lie down and close our eyes completely and go to sleep because the world is a dangerous place. So we're gonna just stand here dozing, all touching, facing outward, protecting ourselves, being together, protecting our babies, resting in the shade. How is it that they and we use the same logic to make a decision like that? Because they and we evolved to be who we are on the same plains in Africa watching the same sun arc across the sky and listening to the whoops and roars of the same enemies. That's how we became who we both are, us and them. We've been neighbors for a very, very long time. Basically, our imperatives are all exactly the same. Find enough to eat, keep your babies alive, try to stay alive. And beneath the skin, we are nearly identical. All mammals, whether we are outfitted for hiking in the hills of Africa or diving under the ocean, have the same organs, the same bones in our skeleton. A whale in its front flipper has these five finger bones that we have in our hand. The same thing because they came from land animals who had already evolved toes before they became whales. So in addition to being almost identical, we have the same nervous system, a vertebrate nervous system with the same neurochemicals and neurotransmitters and hormones that create 
moods and motivations and impulses in all of us, all of us, them and us. So we see things we recognize like helping little babies when little babies need help. Like the curiosity of the young in exploring their world. The deep bonds of family connection. The deep affection between mates. Dancing is dancing, courtship is courtship. And then we often ask a strange question, which is, are they even conscious? Well, what is consciousness? When you're given general anesthesia, you become unconscious. That means you have no sensation coming from your, um, from your uh, sense organs. So why would we ask whether animals that have eyes and ears and noses and tongues that see and hear and smell and lick, why would we ask if they're conscious? When you come out of general anesthesia, you regain consciousness. That means you start to get the input from all your sense organs. That's what we all have. All of us who look and seem and act this way. Sometimes people say, well, only humans have empathy. Well, what is empathy? Empathy is the ability of a mind to match the mood of those around it. Group living animals have to have some level of empathy because when it's time to hurry up, you got to hurry up. You cannot afford to say, wait a second, you got to explain this to me. You just feel like you need to go. If you're on the beach with 300 of your companions and they all startle and fly away, you cannot afford to stand there and say, I'm not leaving until I understand what's going on. Their fright makes you feel frightened and you flee. If you don't, you're not going to last long and your impulse to sit there is going to be eliminated from the gene pool. I see all things in the living world as being on a continuum. Empathy is one of those things. Basic empathy that I've been talking about, feeling with another. A little more distant, sympathy, feeling for another. I understand that your grandmother has just passed away. I'm sad for you. It's not the same grief, you understand that, but you know what they're feeling. And if you want to act on your sympathy, I call that compassion. Human empathy is far from perfect, unfortunately. We have some work to do. We take empathic animals and we sometimes treat them badly. And if you say, well, that's the difference between humans and other animals, we don't treat each other all that well all the time either. People who know only one thing about animal behavior often know this awkward word anthropomorphism. And you know that there's a rule that says you cannot attribute the kinds of thoughts and emotions humans have to any other species. Well, why not? Everything about them shows that they have some thoughts and they have many of the same emotions like fright, a sense of well-being, the ability to be happy at times, the ability to be miserable at other times. When my pup rolls over on her back and shows me her belly, it's because she's just had a thought about a feeling. The thought is, I would like my belly rubbed. And she comes over to me and does this. She doesn't go over to the dining room table or the sofa. She comes to me because she knows that we are family. 
she trusts me thoroughly because I've earned her trust and she knows from experience that I know how to do what she wants. I'll understand what she's asking for and I know how to make it feel good. So she's had a thought and she has felt. If you don't think that's scientific enough, people have trained dogs to go into MRI machines where they can watch their brains. And they see that when they show them pictures of people they know, the parts of their brains that light up are the parts that light up when we see pictures of, we know, of people we know and like. When they show them pictures of strangers, the same thing happens as happens in our brain. We don't have the warm feeling because we don't know who we're looking at. Even rats, there's a sleeping rat down there in that picture. If you look at cross sections of the rat brain as it's sleeping, you can see that it is cycling through some activity. If you have a dog at home, you've often said, I think my dog is dreaming because they're lying on the floor, their paws are going like this, they're going woof, 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 and you say they must be dreaming. Well, they are dreaming, and now that we can look at brains, we can see that dogs dream and rats dream. They have exactly the same sleep patterns that we do. We might say, well, only humans have culture. Humans have a lot of culture. We have many different cultures. Why do we have culture? Well, first of all, culture, what is it? Culture is the behavioral preferences, the habits, the skills, even the attractions that flow socially. Culture tells us who we are. It answers a question about how do we live here where we live? Humans have lots of cultures. We have cultures embedded in cultures. We have religious cultures within the culture of being Americans. We have sports cultures within religious cultures. We have a lot of stacked cultures, but they all help us understand who we are, who we're with, and how we do things. Here is a culture in transition. These are two Maasai women that I'm with, one very traditional and one getting very westernized. It's not easy. These men are having a very hard time with it. These are all Maasai people. These traditional men have been grazing their cows in a place they're not allowed, and they must now face a woman, not only a woman with authority, but a woman with the authority of their national government. I was sitting right there, I took this photograph, I could see the men bewildered by the change that had happened in their lifetime as far as understanding how we live where we live because where we live is changing and how we live there is changing and those changes are not always easy. Where do we get our culture from? Usually, we get it from our parents first and then from elders and our social groups. So we learn how do we do things here, and that's why people who grow up in a rainforest know how to live in a rainforest. People who grow up in the Arctic know how to live in the Arctic, and if you switched them, they would die. That's how important culture is in understanding how do we live here. What must we learn culturally? Some animals must learn everything about how to live, how to defer to authority, how to greet your friends and your neighbors, who is in your community that you are friends with, and who is out of your community that you will be hostile to. 
These are all things we learn. And that goes for us and some other animals. Most of the learning is done by simply watching the interactions around us. And cultures change. Here's a baboon with two babies. You see the eye of one peeking out the middle there. And their culture is changing too. They have to learn how to live around people. And they're, they're, very, they're very good at figuring people out and um, they're, real, uh, they're real good at larceny, actually. They like to take things. Sperm whales have an incredible culture. They live in family groups that are organized just like elephants. Females stay together for their entire lives. A young female never leaves the company of her mother and her aunts and her cousins. Males do at adolescence. Sperm whale family groups live within a system called a clan. There are many families in a clan, and clans can socialize among each other, the families in a clan, but families from different clans will not socialize. How do they know? They know because they have a series of clicks that they use and by their click patterns, which are like a code, like a Morse code, they announce, I'm so-and-so as an individual, I'm from this particular family, and we are members of this particular clan. And this means that in many animals, including humans, culture causes individuals to come together and have a group identity, rather similarly to what we're doing this morning. But then, culture causes the groups to tend to avoid each other or sometimes be actively hostile toward each other. Culture helps animals live and understand how we do things, but in our modern world, our various cultures are constantly bumping up and rubbing up against other cultures, and we are not well enough equipped by evolution to break the pattern of feeling distrust, discomfort, and sometimes hostility to the members of other cultures for no other reason than that they are members of other cultures. That is the basis of many of the problems that we are facing in our human lives today. So these whales all know exactly who they are as individuals they know who they're socializing with, and they can stay together for decades. The ocean is a very, very big place. If after decades you are near somebody that you know, it's not an accident. So as I said, culture brings individuals together, makes groups avoid other groups, and sometimes that helps groups to specialize. Specialist groups who know how they do certain things can actually start evolving separately. So in um, killer whales, you have, or orcas, many people like to call them orcas, you have different groups that have not interbred for a hundred or two hundred thousand years because their culture keeps them apart and their specialties are thorough. Some eat only fish, some eat only mammals, one eats only penguins. That's a cultural thing. And that culture is causing them to evolve very differently and separately. 
When we see animals, we just slap a label on them. We say, oh, that's a chimpanzee, those are orca whales, and those are elephants. That is not how they experience life. What is this, three chimps? Actually, no, it's three individuals who have a history. The scientists who study them know their history very, very well. Hawa happens to be the most dominant male in his community, but Musa was everybody's favorite. He, he seemed like he would be the next most dominant male. And chimpanzees dominance in the community is always won in a contest, often a contest that involves violence. It involves fighting for dominance. These are not just for chimpanzees. They are for chimpanzees with long and different histories and different experiences in life. They are individuals. That tall finned male is a 36 year old. That's his cousin immediately to his left. These whales swim about 75 miles a day. They travel thousands of miles. And the fact that they are together after all those decades shows that that is totally intentional. They hear each other in water where the visibility is only about 100 feet. They can hear each other for about 10 miles. They know exactly what they're going to do and exactly who they are with. They have lives. A strange thing about killer whales is they don't harm people in the wild. These scientists have nothing to fear, even though this whale was one of several that had just killed a young gray whale and had eaten it. This whale, I watched him tear a seal into three pieces with two other companions. And when this little boat came around the corner, those seal-sized people simply stopped to take pictures. They knew they had nothing to be afraid of. They eat seals. Why won't they eat people? Why can we trust them around our toddlers? We have this word biodiversity to mean the diversity of all life on earth. And usually it's talked about in terms of genetics, the genetic diversity within a species, diversity of species and the diversity of habitats. If you learn about biodiversity in a university, that's what they teach you, but that's not all there is to it. Culture is biodiversity's overlooked fourth dimension. If a culture in a region dies, the knowledge of how to live there also dies. And that's why sometimes people have tried to put animals back in a place where the local population had gone extinct. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. This is a thick-billed parrot. They used to live in the Southwest United States. People tried to reintroduce them with birds that were grown in captivity, raised in captivity. They just took them out in cages, opened up the cages. Every single one of them died. It just didn't know what to do. It was like abandoning a dog at the side of the road. You can't just put them back. They're not just marbles that are interchangeable. I'm gonna tell you two quick stories that I think are pretty interesting. Two scientists in two different countries, the US and Canada, both have the same story. They were following killer whales. They got lost in fog. The whales had left. They didn't know where they were. They looked at the compass. They decided to try to head toward home. The whales came back, got in front of their boat, and led them directly to their house on the shoreline. In the Bahamas, a scientist named Denise Herzing studies spotted dolphins. These dolphins that she's been studying for decades, they know her and they know her boat. When she shows up, they all come around. 
She says it's like a joyful reunion of friends. But one day, she got there in the boat, the dolphins were there, and they would not come near the boat. And she said to the captain, what is wrong with the dolphins? Why are they acting so weird? And suddenly somebody came running up from down below and announced that someone who had taken a nap had died in his bunk. Now, how would the dolphins know that one of the human hearts had stopped? Why would it be something they even cared about? And why would it spook them like that? Well, the boat turned around. They took the body back to shore. A few days later, they showed up. The dolphins came around and greeted them. In an aquarium in South Africa, there was a little baby bottlenose dolphin still nursing age. A keeper on a break was just looking at them through the window of a big tank. He's looking through the window and he was smoking a cigarette. Little Dolly came to the window. She looked at him. She went to her mother. She started nursing. She came back to the window. She let all the milk out of her mouth and it enveloped her head like a cloud of smoke. Now, when a human uses one substance to imitate another substance, we call that art. What do these stories tell us? I don't know exactly what they tell us, but I know what they mean. They mean that there are many things going on in the minds of other creatures with whom we share this planet that we have never considered and that we have no current knowledge of, but they are happening and they've been happening here with us for a very long time. The things we tell ourselves are the things that make us human are not the things that make us human. Everything humans do, you can see some, some of it in some other species because all life is on a continuum. I think the thing that makes us human is that we are the most extreme species. We are the most creative. We are by far the most destructive. We are the most compassionate. We're also by far the cruelest. We're all of those things rolled into one extreme being. But love is not the thing that makes us human. There is other love on the planet with us. These are albatrosses, some of my favorite birds. The mates stay together for decades. They take exceptional care of their children and the adults live on tiny little islands in the remotest parts of the world. These are on Laysan Island. The adult goes out for two or three weeks at a time comes back with one gigantic meal. So the chick waits for a week or two between feedings. Both parents are doing this. They may travel eight or 9,000 miles round trip to bring that meal home for their baby. This is where those two albatrosses live on an island called Laysan in the middle of the biggest ocean on the planet. And this is what it looks like there. We don't know about them, but boy, they feel us because in those 8,000 mile, two or three week trips, they come back with bellies full of food and plastic that smells to them like food and they feed that to their chicks. This is not the relationship we are supposed to have with the rest of the living world life on earth. This chick was six months old, almost ready to fly. It was packed with red cigarette lighters. We don't want to have this relationship with other beings in the world, but this is the relationship we actually literally have because we've named ourselves after our big brain. We think we're so smart and we don't actually think of the consequences of a lot of what we do. 
And yet when we are expecting new human life in the world, we paint animals on the nursery room wall. We don't paint cell phones. We don't paint work cubicles. We don't paint computers. We paint animals. We don't even understand why we do this, but I have a thought about it. I think we do this because it's our unconscious blessing to our coming child that says, welcome to this beautiful world. We're not alone here. We have company. And yet every animal in every painting you see of Noah's Ark deemed worthy of salvation by the creator, every one of those species is in mortal danger now. And their flood is us. Is this where evolution is going to end? Because this is actually where it has taken us so far. Well, I certainly hope not. I hope we learned something. We've told ourselves stories about our place with life on earth. We've told ourselves a story that we're not only a smart, inventive, clever tool maker, although there are some other tool makers, we've told ourselves that we are the only ones that matter and that because of that, we can do anything we want to the rest of the world. Now, regardless of how you think of our place in the world, there really is nothing that uh, in, any, in any wisdom tradition or in any religion that says that it's okay for us to wreck and ruin the world. The fact that we might be the smartest, we might be the most clever, we might be the best at thinking is not a license for destruction and a license for harm and pain, but that is what we're doing. And those are the things we're causing because actually we have a ways to go to be the perfect animals that we think and we tell ourselves we are. We could be much more perfect in our compassion to other life forms on earth and to one another. We have a lot of work that we could do to be who we really have the capacity ultimately to become. People think we're at the end of evolution or we're off to one end of creation. This is more like the situation we're living in. There are a lot of living things on this planet that have made the whole journey with us and most of them have been making that journey for a longer time. Here's a more scientifically accurate way of depicting it. Now this shows all of life on earth going back about, um, about half a billion years in this depiction. And this leaves out almost all of the animals and lineages known to have gone extinct. In other words, this is only the ones that are alive now. And what you see is that everything alive now, including us, part of an unbroken chain of living that has been happening for hundreds of millions of years. It is literally mind boggling 
to us. It's very hard for the human brain to wrap itself around who we are, where we are in time, and who we are with. But as a scientist, I can tell you one thing. There are laws of physics. They're called laws of physics because they're seen everywhere in the universe. The speed of light is the same everywhere in the universe. Gravitational attraction is the same everywhere in the universe. We have a word for things that break the laws of physics. That word is called a miracle. When you look at the universe, you do not see life everywhere. In fact, people who have spent entire careers looking for life everywhere have so far come up empty. It means that if there is life anywhere else, it's a rare thing. It's not like light or gravity or the chemical elements that are detectable everywhere we look. It's at least very, very rare, and we may be the only planet with life. We break the laws of physics, and that makes life on Earth a miracle. We should start treating it that way. So we started with a question, do they love us? And we're going to end with a question that inverts our first one, turns it inside out, and simply asks, are we capable of loving them enough to simply let life continue to exist on Earth? Some of the things I showed you are very distressing, but I want you to know that these are scenes from right around my home, all of animals that when I was young were thought to be going extinct. A few people changed our approach to them and brought them back. The peregrine falcon was believed totally doomed. It's the fastest living thing. It's now quite common again. I studied them when I was in college in the field we looked for the last remaining pairs. They were, they were doomed because of DDT. But DDT got banned because of about six people who brought a lawsuit to ban DDT. Same with the ospreys on the right. Same with the humpback whales. The food of the humpback whales is down in that bottom panel there. That one, you can see a little fish just to the right of the head of those jaws snapping shut. All of those fins are millions of those same fish that the whales eat. Those were totally depleted when I was a young adult. They are back now in massive numbers because people put a cap on the fishing. Same with the striped bass in the lower right. What I'm trying to tell you is we can do it. It's been done. We can do it. But it won't happen unless people decide to and want to have beauty and life in the living world rather than go off the stage at the end of our lives saying, I helped wreck it. We can do it. We can keep the world alive. Thank you so very much. It's been a tremendous honor to be here, and I hope I didn't take too much of your time and go too far over my allotted time here this morning. Thanks so much. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Safina. You could have talked for another three hours and I think we all would have been riveted. That was amazing and beautiful. Um, it was profoundly meaningful and simultaneously heartbreaking. And may we have the empathy and compassion to look at the impact that our community has had on our connection to the rest of the living world. So thank you so much for your message. I'd like to move into a time of meditation now, a bit in line with Dr. Safina's theme of connection with a sense of purpose. I'd love it if everyone could be outside in nature for this one, but I realize that's not necessarily feasible. I'll try to record a meditation for this week um, that can be emailed out. Um, but I'd like to do a simple meditation right now that we can all take into our week and at some point replicate it outside. So let's start by closing our eyes, taking a deep breath, get comfortable where you're sitting. Connect to your body through your breath. Be present with yourself. Feel your breath filling your lungs and animating your body. Feel your cells come alive as the oxygen find its way, finds its way to every part of you. Keep breathing at a slow pace that's comfortable for you. Don't try to control your breath, but instead just observe and accept this experience exactly as it is. Now turn your attention outward. Engage with your empathy. Bring your awareness to where the oxygen you breathe is coming from. It is outside of us before our lungs take it into our bodies. Think about what those oxygen molecules have touched before they made their way to you. Take notice of the fact that with every breath you take, you are inhaling molecules that have been touched by the earth since the first plants grew out of the ground. Air that has been processed by trees and green plants, inhaled and exhaled by species of all kinds, shared by all living things on this earth that we all inhabit together. Feel the connection of your breath to the earth and all living things, both ancient and new. One more minute of nice, slow breathing.
One more breath in and out. Amen.